Hey, good morning, church family. I, uh, I know my work with you and our relationship goes far beyond Sunday morning, but I love getting to wake up on Sundays knowing that we get to be together. So I want to welcome all those of you in person today, all of you joining and participating with us online. Thank you for joining us. I let you know last week, uh, and one thing I just told you, I mean, Casey and I want to live our lives where we help people take a step closer to Jesus, whether that is how I preach or we preach or how we pray or how we come alongside of people or how we disciple folks and friendship. We just want to help people take a step closer to Jesus. And one way we have been able to do that is to lead a couple of trips to the Holy Lands. We're going to lead another one in 2023 and 2024. And we have an information meeting this Tuesday night, 7.30, which will be a Zoom meeting. And then 6.30 Wednesday night here at Sycamore View in room 100, just to share some information about that. So if you were interested, interested in joining us. We'd love for you to participate either online Tuesday night, which uh, you can find that in the weekly email or talk to Casey or myself or join us Wednesday night. We'd love to talk to you more about it. Just over the last week of the life of this church, the homeless in our community have been fed. Yesterday, over a hundred people came through for our grocery giveaway to feed those in our immediate community who are hungry this past week, we had around 40 of our teenagers and adult volunteers who joined dozens of other church or dozens of other people, a few other churches who painted nine houses in the Orange Mound area. This morning, we have a mission group of some of our teenagers who were off to Fort Worth for a few days. Tomorrow, we have a mission trip going to Panama. This past week, we had two babies born into our church. Seth and Jenna King had their daughter Maddie and the Hardys, Andrew and Hannah. Hardy had their baby, Amelia, just a couple of days ago. And this past week, we lost one of our dear friends and a longtime member of this church, Monifa. And we celebrated her uh, funeral last night. There's been a lot that has happened in the life of this church, and the resurrection of Jesus is what has called us into the world to serve. And last night, as we honored the life of Monifa, it is the resurrection of Jesus that gives us hope, even in the midst of suffering and death, that that is not how a story ends. Today I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm 51 is one of the most well-known psalms. When it comes to psalms people have memorized, you have Psalm 23, which is probably the psalm most people know more than any other psalm. You have Psalm 51, Psalm 63, Psalms 103. And Psalm 51 is one of those psalms that David didn't write this out of a love for creation, and he didn't write this when he was being chased by all of his enemies, when it seemed like David's songwriting skills were at their best. Like Taylor Swift writes her hits after breakups, David wrote his hits after being chased by enemies, hiding in caves. It's like his songwriting was at its best. And this isn't either one of those. He's not just all, it's not just an awe and appreciation for creation. It's not that he's on the run from his enemies. This one comes after a time in his life of great sin. Now, I know any kind of sin. Uh, separates us from God. It's a violation of a covenant. It's a violation of relationship. I've said it before and I believe it. There is no such thing as even personal secret sin that doesn't have an impact on everyone else around you because secret sin has an impact on you and it, therefore it impacts everyone else. Right, but there are some sins that have more consequences. And Psalm 51 is one that David wrote after a time in his, in his life when there was an affair, there was an adultery, there was murder, there was pride. If you were to look at the Ten Commandments in Psalm 51, it is probably born out of a context in which David broke all of them. And in Psalm 51, it is this cry of his heart to be connected to God. It's, a, and it's, a, it's an acknowledgement of the wrongs in his life. And just a few verses, and I want Psalm 51 to be one of those chapters that's in your back pocket. 
Because when there are those moments in your life when you have violated a covenant with God or with other people, this is a psalm of restoration and redemption for you. And in Psalm chapter 51 and verse 1 and 2, it's have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out all my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. If you go to verse 7, David uh, starts talking about cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. And then in verse 10 through 12, David continues just crying out to God. Like, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And let's stop right there just for a moment. Have you ever had moments in your life when these are the cries of your heart coming to God in prayer? Because this is David coming before God, and it's like David is like, I cannot believe I've done some of the things I did. Where one sin led to another sin, and now all this disruption, because he traded just a few moments of pleasure for what would become a lifetime of consequences. And now he's crying out to God, offering up prayers for God's mercy and God's grace and an acknowledgement of forgiveness and wanting to be clean again. And, and this is the cry of his heart. I'm sure most of us have been there at some point. And if we are praying prayers like this in our lives, where we are trying to lay ourselves before God to acknowledge God's mercy and grace and forgiveness, we probably end our prayers with a reminder of thank you God that your forgiveness is real or a reminder that God help me as I move forward not to be covered in guilt and shame but to live in the freedom that comes in Christ or the freedom that comes in you but David ends Psalm 51 differently where after verses of his heart crying out to God for reconnection and redemption if you go to this next one here's how Psalm 51 ends may it please you to prosper Zion and to build up the walls of Jerusalem. And I don't think this is how any of us pray. Like, I don't think any of us pray in a way where it's like, God, I have sinned before you, and I acknowledge my sin, and I'm sorry, but God, may the waters of the Mississippi bless the 901 this week. God, I have sinned before you, and I'm sorry, but may your kingdom come on Sam Cooper and 240 right now today as it is in heaven. Like, I don't think we pray like this. But for Jews who were rooted in the heart of God, they also were fully aware that they were rooted in the mission of God. Therefore, one person's righteousness had an impact on the righteousness of the context they lived in, especially if you were a leader. So for David to acknowledge what it meant for him to be righteous before God was also being aware of what righteousness meant for an entire city. So part of David's recovery and part of his healing and is, a, is an acknowledgement that the righteousness of God doesn't just set a person right. It is what sets a whole context right. So hold that thought. I want to come back to it here in just a moment. Many of us, our lives have been changed in some ways by Google Maps. Some of you drive with Google Maps on or some form of it, even if you know exactly where you're going. So on the screen right now, if you go to this image, we got Sycamore View all the way to the Cheesecake Corner, which is downtown. <laughs> I got my Amen Corner here today, all right? 
On Sundays, it's open from 3 to 10. And if a preacher mentions a restaurant in a sermon, it doesn't count as calories on a Sunday. All right, that's, that's biblical. Can I get an amen for that? All right. Now, you put this in Google Maps, and it's going to show you a few different ways you could get to the Cheesecake Corner, and you get to choose your route. And one of the reasons we put this on our phone or, on, or it's in our cars is that it will tell us if there's a traffic accident, if there's road construction, if there's a quicker route. So we're able to choose our route to get to the Cheesecake Corner. Now, Google Maps, almost every time, is accurate. Have you ever had this in your phone or on your car and it tries to have you turn into a field or turn into a parking lot that doesn't exist? Maybe you've come across signs like this next one right here that occasionally will say, Google is wrong. This road does not go through to Canyon Creek Trailhead. Or for any of my office fans in the house, right? Maybe you remember this episode where Dwight and Michael are driving down the road and they're fighting about whether they should take a turn or not, and they end up going into a body of water where everybody was okay in the scene. All right, but this is what happens. Now, before Google Maps, a little over a decade ago, do you remember what we would do to get places? We would go to MapQuest, and we would print it off. When I was first here, my first couple of years here for hospital visits, because I didn't know the city well, or going to the homes uh, of some of your houses, just going places throughout the city, sometimes I or Donna would print these for me, and I would go to my car with two to three pages of MapQuest. It was printed out, and it would tell you where to turn and how many miles until you turn. Before MapQuest, you remember what we would do? We carried maps in our cars. Have your parents ever gotten a fight before on a road trip because they're trying to interpret a map? And then once you unfold the map of your city or you're on a road trip of the state that you're in, the angels look at God when it came to trying to fold that thing back up, asking, do you think they can do it this time? Because trying to put that map back in place is like a fitted sheet, right? Like it's almost impossible to do. Or what we would do, and you can stay right there just for a moment with that map, we would actually call people and get directions. And they knew how to tell you how to get to their house or how to get to church. And there were markers that we would use. So McDonald's wasn't just a place you would go get a, a burger or nuggets. It was a marker that when you pass the McDonald's on Sycamore View, you just go a little further down on the right, and then you will get where you need to go. Um... There's a guy named Jens, and you can throw his picture up right here. Jens was a Danish, or is a Danish software engineer. And Jens and his brother Lars launched a company back at the turn of the century in which they were trying to do some mapping projects, developing some prototypes. Google bought their company. They became employed by Google. And shortly after working for Google, Jens discovered and created what we now know as the Google Map Pen. And he was very strategic in why he created this. So if you go to the next image right here, this is what it usually looks like. If you go to the next one, this is what it usually looks like on a map. And he didn't want a star because he felt like a star was going to take up too much space place on a map and he didn't want a big arrow just a pin 
And the pen doesn't tell you where to go or how to get there. It tells you where you are or where certain places are. And a lot of times as we talk about faith, and I know a lot of times from this stage as I talk about faith, and we talk about what discipleship means, a lot of times we talk about the journey or how we are getting somewhere or the road that we are on. And I think it's a biblical way to think about life. But what I want to do for the next few weeks is I want to talk about the idea of just pinned. Like God works in places. God is on location. God is on the spot. And throughout history, God has shown us that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the story of God isn't just some abstract idea that has no heart, no hands, or no feet. It has a place and it has a spot and God has worked in places and history and God still does. So the next few weeks, I just want to talk about, today I want to talk about Jerusalem. I want to talk about, next week I want to talk about the Mount of Olives. We're going to talk about Jericho and Capernaum and Athens. And we're just going to look at these places on a map where specific things have happened that have changed the world, that have launched the church. And then we're going to talk about what does this mean for our context? Because the God who has worked in Jerusalem and in Bethlehem is the God who works in Memphis, Bartlett, Lakeland, Arlington. Jerusalem... I think many of us would argue Jerusalem is one of, if not the greatest city in the world. Three of the oldest religions take pilgrimages to Jerusalem every year. They have for thousands of years. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam consider Jerusalem to be a holy city or the holy city. I've been blessed in my life, not to go to a lot of places throughout the world, but I've been to Jerusalem a couple of times. I've been to some cool places, and there is no place in the world no place in the world that moves my heart and soul like standing in this place right here which is from the Mount of Olives the Garden of Gethsemane looking out over Jerusalem so I want to try to create an image for you as you hopefully you're able to see no matter where you are you're able to see kind of this panoramic view of the city of Jerusalem and here's the scene I want to create a scene of five men standing on the Mount of Olives, looking out over Jerusalem. And the five men are Abraham, David, Peter, Paul, and Jesus. And if those five men were standing together on the Mount of Olives, all looking out on the image, the picture that you see right now, maybe Abraham would go first. And Abraham may say something like this. That dome that you're looking at right there in the picture... That dome we see, that is where I took my son in Genesis chapter 22. When there was this test of God, where God came and told me that I needed to sacrifice my son. So I took him there to what many believe that is Mount Moriah. And that's where I took him. Where I wanted God to know how much I love and want to obey God. And I also wanted my son to know that no matter what, I'm obeying God. And, and that is where I declared God to be Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. And then maybe it would be David's turn. Where David may say, well, right down there to the left in the valley, that is the old city of David. That's where his palace was. That's where David made mistakes. That's where David probably wrote some of his psalms. And it's where David had a vision from God, a passion. But one thing he wanted to do was to build a temple, a place. And not that God was asking for it, but that he wanted to build a place where people could come and they could connect with the divine. They could worship God. And even though he's not the one who built it, he had the vision for the temple to be built where the temple is today 
And then maybe Peter would go. And Peter would probably have memories of being a child as his family would travel from the Sea of Galilee a couple of days where they would go to Jerusalem for some feasts. And there they would celebrate some of the festivals like Passover or Pentecost or uh, the Feast of Weeks and the uh, Feast of Weeks. And they would go, the Feast of Harvest, and they would go to Jerusalem. And maybe Peter had those memories of being in that city with the people of God. And maybe he could remember that some of the prayers they would pray is that God would send the Messiah to the world. I mean, that's, maybe that's where Peter looks over at Jesus as they're looking out over Jerusalem and just says, and I, we thought it was you, but even as you claimed to be the Messiah, there were moments that we weren't really sure it was you. And then when Jesus rose from the dead and restored Peter, that is where Peter could look out and say, I remember the house I was in. And what we know is Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit of God came. And I remember the sermon I preached and the 3,000 people who were baptized that day. And then maybe it was Paul's turn. And maybe Paul starts out somewhat the same way Peter did. Like Peter, I remember too being a kid and we would come to Jerusalem for the festivals. This is where we would come. And I remember somewhat of what happened on the day of Pentecost, but I was one of those people who didn't believe it was a move of God. I remember persecuting the church. I remember people who died for what they were claiming to be the name of Christ. I remember when Jesus met me on the road to Damascus and coming to Jerusalem where God discipled me in parts of this city. And, Peter, do you remember in Acts 15 when we came back to this city? Where we called all the church and we called the elders and the leaders where we needed to meet here because as the mission of God was expanding, now there were a lot of questions of what the mission of God was going to mean as it went all throughout the world. So they gathered there in Acts chapter 15 where you had some people who had GLM signs of Gentiles' lives matter and others with JLM, Jews' lives matter and others with ALM, all lives matter. And they were trying to flesh out what the mission of God was going to look like as it went throughout the world and what they decided on was it for this to happen everybody is going to have to make some sacrifices everybody's going to have to sacrifice a little bit for these relationships to come together in the kingdom of God and then it's Jesus and Jesus probably had stories that maybe his mother shared with him of when he was a baby he went to Jerusalem and there was a prophetess named Anna and a prophet named Simeon who prayed over him and blessed him as a child and then Jesus may tell the story of being 12 years old in the temple when the wisdom of God was upon him and he's teaching all these other people and there was a little miscommunication with his mom and dad and they got separated a little bit and maybe he laughs about that for a moment and then he remembers coming to the city and maybe he looks at Peter and says, do you remember when we were down in the valley? David, next to where you used to live, and there was that blind man. And Peter, do you remember you and some of your friends, the apostles, they asked me who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And I said, neither. And then I healed that blind man. And then right there at the southern parts of the temple, do you remember where we were at that pool when that man who hadn't been able to walk for 38 years, remember when I had compassion, I healed that man? You remember where I drove, drove out some people there in the temple because the place where Gentiles and everyone throughout the world should be able to come and connect to God, it had become this marketplace where prices were keeping people from connecting to God and having sacrifices to offer. And then Jesus may even say something like this, and right where we're standing now is where Judas came and kissed my cheek and where I was arrested and taken back into the city 
where we went to Caiaphas' house and Herod's palace and to the cross and then in the grave where three days later God rose me from the dead. And my goal today in this message is not for you to go home and try to force the city of Jerusalem to be your favorite city in the world, but it is for you to respect the work of God that has happened in that little place in the world. One of my best friends was on a trip over to the Holy Lands in college and he had a professor one day, they were standing right there by the Sea of Galilee. And the professor was trying to help the students understand that some amazing things happened here, but the holiness of God is something that exists everywhere in the world. So no matter where you are, whether you're in Nashville or Searcy or right here at the Sea of Galilee, wherever we are, wherever God is, it's holy. So there's nothing more holy. This is what the professor talking. There's nothing more holy about where, where we are standing at the Sea of Galilee than where you go to college back in the States. And he was trying to help the students understand that God plays in 10,000 places. God works all over the world. So it's not like this is holier than anywhere else. And then the professor asked one of my best friends in the world to sing a song. And Kip, I know this happens to you all the time. The song that came to him was, This is holy ground. We're standing on holy ground. In which all the students had their eyes closed and they were so moved by the song. And the professor who had just taught that there's nothing holier about this place than anywhere else is over there just shaking his head like I just taught the complete opposite though it could be true you've probably been to sites before that feel holy sites that make you whisper like the Arlington Cemetery or the Elmwood Cemetery the, the Civil Rights Museum standing outside of where Dr. King was assassinated and there are sites all throughout the world that you may go to, and they are sites that tell you about things that have happened in history. But there is no site that gives us anything close to what happened in the city of Jerusalem. Because great leaders and kings and heroes, heroes of the faith, have died, and you can go see their graves and look at their tombstones, but there's no grave for Jesus in Jerusalem. That that is a place that has given us a story of a God who died and a God who still lives. And he lives today in 10,000 places. So when you get to the end of the Bible, the end of Scripture, the way Revelation paints an image of the end of times is of a city that comes down. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, it says, The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God, and I will also write on them my new name. And toward the very end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 21, it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So the image we get at the very end of the Bible, it's not of a new Rome or a new D.C. It's not of a new Philippi. It's a new Jerusalem. A city that is made right. Heaven described as a city that comes down. So three things I want to do over the next few weeks. One, I want you to know how much God loves cities. And I can make that claim 
and still hold up. God loves individuals. God wants people to be saved. But God loves contexts. A little over 10 years ago, the Lord pressed on me, the Lord taught me, and I felt almost in question form. It was like God, God was asking, like, Josh, do you know what we call the books of the New Testament? And the answer is we call them cities that existed in first century culture. If you think of some of the worst cities that existed in the first century, we now have named books of the Bible after them, Ephesus and Corinth and Rome. These are cities full of so much immorality, but they were places where the Spirit of God and the gospel just expanded and grew because God didn't give up on those places. And because God didn't give up on Rome and God didn't give up on Philippi, God isn't giving up on Memphis or San Francisco or New York City. Okay, maybe he's kind of giving up on New York City. I'm just joking. God's not giving up on Boston, New Orleans. The second thing I want to help us see over the next few weeks is one of the greatest, most dangerous prayers we can pray is this. If the resurrection of Jesus is the best news for the world, how does it change how I engage my context? If the resurrection is the best news for the world, how does the resurrection of Jesus want to use this church and the people here to bring this city to life in ways that reflect the glory of God? And the third thing is for us to see that when God opens our eyes, it's not just to see the Bible more clearly, though it helps, it's to see how God is playing all around us. So as God is opening our eyes, it's to see Scripture more clearly, but it's also to see what God is doing in our lives and in our contexts Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday of this week. So this new Jerusalem that is described in Revelation is a reflection of the heart of God, that God wants to set the world right. God wants to set cities right. God wants to set people right, and God wants to set you right. I want to ask our elders, we have one who will come to the front and one who will be in the back to receive you. And the reason we do this, it's not because we see ourselves as priests who give you access to God, but it's moments when we take the hand of God and the hand of people and help them connect. So whoever those elders are, I don't know who Shepherd A, but if you'll go ahead and move forward, and Shepherd B, if you'll go to the back, just so people can see your face and know where they are going. And here in the next few minutes, we engage in something every Sunday where heaven and earth meet. And it's in the bread and the cup. The most important meal we take every week, the meal that gives us hope, the meal that reminds us of our story, the meal that opens our eyes to be who God wants us to be this week. So as we move to these tables over the next few minutes, you may choose to take this as a moment to sit with God and to reflect on your life with God, or you may choose together as a family or as friends and to take this together as this is the meal that holds people together all over the world today. But right now, will you close your eyes, bow your heads? If you want to open your hands where you are just to receive from the Lord, I always invite you to do that. For God, my prayer for this church today is that you give us both rest and unrest. That you give us rest in the midst of suffering and chaos in the world, but that you give us unrest and complacency and apathy. Give us rest in the righteousness, your righteousness that you have gifted us with. And give us unrest as we wrestle with what it means to be your people this week. May this bread and the cup give us rest today 
knowing that there is a story that has happened that we have been invited into, and may it give us unrest to create uh, some holiness inside of us that will make us wrestle with what it is you are doing this week and how you are inviting us into your story. So God, in this moment as a church, we are thankful for the meal that holds us together through it all. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You're invited to one of our tables.